Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, good morning. Fun coincidence happened this week, if we can call it that. Um, I found out that the Wednesday night Bible study that has been studying were, uh, text by text through the Bible for the last 10 years just finished the book of Acts. And guess what chapter we're talking about today? So that was fun. So we'll start there in Acts 27. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are here, this is the man whose death is demanded by all the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem. But in my opinion, he has done nothing deserving death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, I have decided to send him to Rome. So when the time came, we set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. So we've been hearing scenes from the book of the Acts of the Apostles for the last few weeks, and now we reach the very end of that particular account. We began with Jesus' charge to his disciples, you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And then we heard about the first days of the church, both in the joys of the church sharing with one another, forming this new fledgling community, and then some of the challenges as some of the members struggled to rid themselves of some old habits. But this series is short, alas, and so we skipped this pretty decent chunk in the middle, notably the conversion of a Pharisee named Saul, the accounts of whose journeys take a pretty significant portion of the rest of the book of Acts. Suffice it to say that Saul began as a Pharisee persecuting this new Jesus movement, and in this miraculous experience, he becomes a believer. And then he's renamed Paul, and he becomes the foremost missionary of the Jesus movement. And here we find him on his final journey. He's planted many churches among the Gentiles, but his goal has always been to visit the church in the capital city of the empire, the city of Rome, and tell Caesar about Jesus. Now along the way, he's made some enemies, namely the Pharisees that he used to call his brethren who now, along with their political rivals, the Sadducees, actively seek his death. Neither of these groups want him to disrupt their carefully maintained status quo of power within the Roman Empire. So we join the story now, after Paul has been in prison for several years, as his enemies seek to find a permanent but uh, legal end to their trouble. Now, what makes it challenging for the Pharisees is that while Paul is a Jew, he's also a Roman citizen by birth on his father's side. And Roman citizens had rights in the empire that the Jews did not, namely the right to a full trial, which is really good for Paul because he'd been the unwitting cause of several riots from his preaching. I mean, who hasn't, right? But as it was a serious charge, his citizenship required that he be brought to trial before the emperor, a man named Nero. I'm sure that man's reputation precedes him. 
So he's been imprisoned in the port city of Caesarea, and it's from here that he's going to be transported to Rome along with several other prisoners. Now, these prisoners are likely already sentenced to death, and they're being brought to become gladiators for the entertainment of the Roman elite. It's not exactly how Paul expected to get to Rome, but he'll take it. Now, along with him are two other believers who do not seem to be prisoners. There's Aristarchus, who's a Macedonian, and there's Luke, who's a doctor, the man who's writing this account. And Paul is in the charge of a Roman centurion captain named Julius, and his soldiers is a man who seems to have grown somewhat fond of Paul, which is a really unusual thing for prisoners in the Roman Empire. Most were treated as cargo. On ship travels, they were often kept below decks and so suffered from dehydration and hunger. So they set sail. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. We had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall, and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Men, he said, I believe there is trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our lives as well. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. When a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought that they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and they sailed close to the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly and a wind of typhoon strength called the Northeaster burst across the island and blew us out to sea. Sea journeys are a very uh, classic feature of the epic stories of the ancient world. Think about like the Odyssey or the Aeneid. But it's odd finding one in the story of this fledgling Jewish sect called Christianity. Even though Luke is himself a Greek doctor, Paul is a Hebrew, a Pharisee from Tarshish. But Paul is no stranger to travel by the sea. And so it turns out Paul is actually the exception to his culture. See, the Jews were a desert-dwelling culture. They left the sailing to the Phoenicians and the Greeks and the Egyptians. If you go back through the scriptures, you'll read after passage after passage about the evils of the sea. It became the symbol of chaos and evil, a dark force, even a power in its own right. In the beginning, the Hebrew scriptures say that God's spirit hovered over the deep and then proceeds to take the chaos of the deep and organize it. He makes it orderly, keeping the chaos at bay. In the book of Daniel, his vision shows that the monsters are coming out of the ocean because why wouldn't they? The Psalms take their cue from Genesis and they depict God as the one who saved sailors and others from the chaos of the deep. And then as we heard earlier, Jesus storm, saving the disciples from certain death of drowning in the deep. But Paul, on the other hand, had become a consummate sea traveler to spread the good news of Jesus around the known world. During his missionary journeys alone, he traveled some miles on the sea in at least 11 different voyages. Apparently, that makes him one of the foremost, most experienced people on the ship. But as a prisoner, apparently nobody in charge wanted to listen to what he had to say. Evidently, the ship owner and the merchant are more concerned with protecting their cargo, their financial investment, which in this case is wheat, 
a cargo that can spoil. And so they eventually persuaded the ship's captain to take the risk. Now it's a risk because they've left Caesarea in a really challenging time of year. Just before the beginning of winter, a time of great storms in the Mediterranean. And Paul knows this. Despite his warnings, though, they chose to leave anyway. And sure enough, as soon as they leave, the weather turns on them. Now, we've all experienced a nor'easter before. It's apparently much the same in the Mediterranean. Violent and unpredictable, especially for the wooden ships of the day. And so sure enough, instead of making it to a safe port, they are blown out to sea. The sailors couldn't turn the wind, and so they gave up and let it run before the gale. We sailed along the sheltered side of a small island named Kauda, where with great difficulty we hoisted aboard the lifeboat being towed behind us. Then the sailors bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. They were afraid of being driven across the sandbars of Sirtis off the African coast, so they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and were driven before the wind. The next day, gale force winds continued to batter the ship. The crew began throwing the cargo overboard. Well, so much for protecting the financial investment. The following day, they even took some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. The terrible storm raged for many days, blotting out the sun and stars, until at last, all hope was gone. We are in the final series, exploring our cultural moment, and what our response to that cultural moment should be as Christians. Now, I started three weeks ago talking about the three pillars of this big cultural shift that we're calling a gray zone, a time between times, as it were. Um, but on reflection, Pastor Ben and I decided that uh, pillars are not such a great description of something so complex. And so we adapted and we renamed these streams, which is a more fitting example because the three really mingle and mix quite a bit. Um, it's oddly fitting that in describing a complex world, it's a world of consumerism, a world of chaos, requires a bit of circular storytelling. It's tough to show where one stream ends and where the others begin. So to sum it up, the world is complicated, meaning it's intricate, but it's hierarchical, it's linear. It is now complex, it is decentralized, it is networked. All the pieces connect to all the other pieces. And so when one thing happens, it might affect everything else. Or nothing else at all. You just don't know. Our globalized, digitized society is interconnected, which on the one hand means that a single person can influence the entire world from the comfort of their own home. Or, a single person can become buried in the deep of eight billion competing opinions. And I do mean single people, because in a highly transient globalized world where change is a constant, where our relationships are shaped more by consumerism and convenience than by mutuality, where our religious impulse is relegated to the private realm, and where the algorithms of our social media and search feeds silo us into clusters of like-minded people, which only enhances our entitlement. It's in this sort of world that our tendency to put our own individual autonomy and authority over that of 
our society is amplified. Restrictions and boundaries are now basically considered profanity in our culture. We imagine an ideal world devoid of commitment or responsibility or any sort of hardship where we always feel good. All we need is the money to purchase it. But to quote pastor and sociologist Mark Sayers, the reason we feel as anxious as we do is that we don't see what we expected. We came running into the new world with arms raised in triumph like a boxer waiting for flowers to flood the ring. But as the darkness swirls around us, our posture shifts. Our arms slouch in confusion as if to ask, what's this? Expect utopia and dystopia is jarring. Because that world, the, the one where we always feel good and we don't have boundaries or responsibilities, that world is unsustainable and unattainable. Though we desire high success without high cost, it turns out that there are limitations on what we can do alone. And yet to our frustration, on the other side, a mutually beneficial society comes with a cost to the individual, a cost that many of us are not ready to pay. And so we fight about it. A world of complexity is a chaotic world. When everyone is an individual looking out for themselves, that can cause a fair bit of chaos. We see it all the time, a downward spiral of competing political ideologies and polarization, the constant flow of large amounts of conflicting information that are then interpreted through feelings and punditry rather than through logic, the hubris of overconfidence and skyrocketing pride that we see in our celebrities and our leaders is at once emulated by everybody else and yet has also led to a loss of trust of the institutions that built us. But even more than that, because everything interconnected with itself, everything has gotten so unpredictable. Global politics, intercultural and interreligious dynamics, all weave this web of complexity that never seems to do what we expect. The world is at war in a ton of different places and on the brink of war in many others. It's more like the weather than it is like an org chart. In a word, the world is volatile. It seems to erupt at any moment with the slightest quiver or poke. Which is a pretty gloomy picture to paint. This is much like the storm in which Paul finds himself. It seems hopeless. We, the church, are at the mercy of the wind and the rain and the darkness, tossed around by the deep of the waves of our culture. Like the sailors and the prisoners and the soldiers on this dying husk of a ship, we can sometimes feel like in this cultural moment, all hope is lost. Now, I had the chance to sit down this uh, last week with our own Greg Voth over coffee. Greg is a physicist that works with chaos theory in a field called fluid dynamics, which, to put it very simply, means that he talks about how things move in turbulent systems. Think like, um, how does exhaust pollution work in the air over a factory? Now, I've been geeking out about our conversation ever since. It was great. He's kind of like Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park. 
We just need to get him those glasses. Anyway, if the name wasn't a dead giveaway, applying chaos theory to turbulent systems has a lot of bearing on understanding a world in chaos. Now, what they've pieced together so far is that because there are so many variables in a turbulent system, it's impossible to determine where a, an individual particle might end up, much less the entire system. And you wonder why the weather people get it wrong so often. However, Greg and his colleagues can fairly accurately predict some things about how individual particles in the system will behave while they're in the system. For example, and again, I am assured that this is very oversimplified, so bear with me here. If I'm in my kayak on the Matabasset River, you were wondering when the kayak reference was coming. Here it is. <laughs> if, in my, if I'm in my kayak and I'm paddling, I'm working against the system, and so I can generally get to where I want to. However, if I stop paddling, I don't know where my boat's going to end up. Between the current and the wind, who knows? But I can almost guarantee you that every single time, my boat will somehow end up perpendicular to the river, being carried by the current, mostly downstream, sometimes not. Now, I really don't know why that is. I'm sure Greg could tell me. But that seems to be what happens. Some things inside of a chaotic system can be predicted. But I still can't, say, redirect the entire Matabasset with my paddle. Or can I? What's interesting to me is that apparently tiny nudges in a, in a turbulent system can have dramatic, long-lasting effects on the system. The whole system can end up somewhere completely different than it was originally going because of what's called the butterfly effect. A butterfly flaps its wings in Peking, and in Central Park you get rain instead of sunshine, right? We've heard that? And so it may not seem like, say, a small stick could redirect the Matabasset, but if you've ever been there, you'll see lots of sticks all piled together, and then suddenly a meadow floods and the river changes course, all because a family of beavers moved in. And so, well, there it is. That, that's chaos theory. I practiced that, by the way, if you can't tell. So to continue the analogy, we don't know what changes to make to our culture. We cannot predict that sort of thing. We don't have a big enough picture of the trillions of variables and forces at work. But God can. God designed and created the whole thing, including our ability to choose, which, by the way, is probably the most chaotic factor in a turbulent social system. Choice introduces all kinds of challenge. So if we are to stay in tune with the creator of all things, God can show us what nudges we should make. Now, there's a caveat here. We need to be very careful how we approach this because if we're not careful, this could become a conversation about control. The problem feels like we can't control where our culture is going and we can't control what happens to us, which is where the anxiety comes from. And that's actually one of the things that contributes to the chaos of the system. We have entire nations of individuals all trying to control the rest of the world to suit their preferences. But if it's not obvious by now, the control that we're told that we have is actually an illusion. It's not because somebody else is in control. 
but because nobody is. It's a chaotic system for a reason. As the greatest movie of all time said, life is pain, princess. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. I think Paul's trip through the storm enlightens us quite a bit because I think that God has actually already given us the kind of nudges that we need to apply in the midst of the turbulent system of our time. So let's continue. No one had eaten for a long time. This is never a good thing. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss. I love this. They're all starving, and he goes, I told you so. <laughs> Tact apparently is not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> but take courage, he continues. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. For last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage, for I believe God. It will be just as he said, but we will be shipwrecked on an island. There's a lot of conflicting emotions, I think, going around in the crew as he talks. About midnight on the 14th night of the storm, as we were being driven across the Sea of Adria, the sailors sensed that land was near. Just as day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. You have been so worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks, he said. They are anxious and they are not making great choices. Please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will perish. Then he took some bread, gave thanks to God before them all, and broke off a piece and he ate it. Then everyone was encouraged and began to eat, all 276 of us who were on board. This is not a really small ship. When morning dawned, they didn't recognize the coastline, but they saw a bay with a beach and wondered if they could get to shore by running the ship aground. So they cut off the anchors, they left them in the sea. And then they lowered the rudders and raised the foresail and headed towards shore. But they hit a shoal and they ran the ship aground too soon. The bow of the ship stuck fast, while the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves and began to break apart. So Luke's account here, it turns out, is the most accurate account of maritime life from the first century that archaeologists have managed to find in any of ancient literature. But if anybody ever told you that becoming a follower of Jesus was going to be uh, easy, that all your troubles are now past, they haven't actually read what Luke wrote here. Two weeks. Two weeks. They have been in this storm, being tossed around, helpless in the middle of the unforgiving Mediterranean Sea. But Paul has said that they'll be saved. An angel told me. Now, if you read the full text, which I'm abridging a bit here for time, you're going to hear a lot of salvation language here. You'll all be saved. Not a hair on your heads will perish. They even break bread together. But Paul then gives thanks he breaks off a piece of bread and he takes it and then he gives it to everybody else. I mean, does that sound familiar? It's not actually communion, but boy, it's a lot like it. And then they run aground on this shoal, sandbar. They just wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape. 
but the commanding officer wanted to spare Paul, so he didn't let them carry out their plan. Then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. The others held on to planks or debris from the sunken ship, so everyone escaped safely to shore. Now notice how Paul is acting here. He's leading. I mean, it's kind of an informal leadership, right? He's still a prisoner. But people are listening to him, and they're doing the things that he suggests. And it's no wonder. Look how calm he is. There's no anxiety. There's no anger. There's no hopelessness. Just a solid confidence that the God that Paul worships will see him through. And by extension, the rest of the people on board. Now that bit about killing the prisoners, that was a standing rule in the Roman military. When you're transporting prisoners, if you can't get them to, to, to their destination because of circumstances beyond your control, they die. End of story. If they escape, you, Roman soldier, you will pay for their life with your own. So why on earth did the centurion Julius not only let Paul take charge, but then actively ignore a standing rule at the potential expense of his own life? I think it's because Paul, this whole time, has followed God's advice through the prophet Jeremiah, who he'd know very well. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. He's consistently worked to keep everyone alive, safe, even prosperous if you think about the uh, ship owner early in the story. He realizes that his welfare has become intertwined with the welfare of his captors. So he gives good advice, even when it's ignored. He complies with his captors. He even makes sure that they all get something to eat in the midst of a hopeless situation. And so Julius now sees a worthwhile that could potentially get everyone to Rome. Which they do, by the way. If you read what happens in Acts 28, there's some pretty crazy stuff involving snakes and healings and all kinds of good stuff. I recommend it. So what have we learned? Well, first, adaptive creativity. Paul is a leader through and through. But the reason that his leadership is so successful is because he is deeply aware of his purpose. And as such, the goal is all that matters. How he gets to Rome is not nearly as important to him than simply getting there. And so Paul is incredibly adaptive. He's creative in how he goes about things. If the situation requires him to be quiet, he'll be quiet. It requires him to speak up, he'll speak up. He uses his experience and his knowledge to advance the mission. When things change, he just tries something else. He's willing to collaborate even with his enemies and his oppressors to follow God's instructions. Now, how many of us can say the same? In a polarized world, when someone disagrees with you, now they're your enemy, how many of us regularly break bread with someone whose politics significantly differ from our own? How often do we choose to serve someone of other ethnic groups or age demographics from us? Paul meets every curveball he's thrown with the question, how can God use this rather than with anger or lament? 
He never abandons himself to hopelessness or to questioning whether maybe God was wrong in choosing him. In short, he follows the Spirit of God. Now, the ancient Celts did not use the dove to symbolize the Holy Spirit like we do. They had another bird, a wild goose. To them, rightfully, the spirit is a wild, untamable, unpredictable, and to be frank, not particularly safe being. As God says, my ways are far beyond anything that you could imagine. And Paul knows this too, but Paul also knows that the spirit of God is good. And so he zigs when the spirit zigs when the spirit zags. He's willing to abandon his plan, his ideas, his preferences, even his comfort when circumstances change and creatively adapt to the situation. In other words, we don't have to think of ourselves as victims of the chaos. We have choices, even when it doesn't seem like it, even if that choice is simply remaining faithful, to trust God when all hope seems lost. Paul does not try to control the outcome. He releases his anxiety, he nudges the system where he can, and then he trusts God to take care of the rest. Desperation for vision births innovation and creativity. Which brings me to the other thing that I learned here. Paul is clearly willing to pay any cost to see the good news of Jesus preached. He knows who he is. More importantly, he knows whose he is. And so because of his unfailing trust in the God that he worships, he's willing to go through any hardship. Not just like being slightly uncomfortable, like just letting it go when the barista gets my cappuccino wrong. Like, not like that. But he's willing to suffer torture, poverty, humiliation, and imprisonment if that's what it takes to make Jesus known. He's aware and unafraid of the consequences of living in a pluralistic society where his religion is not the norm, much less has any power or influence. Paul abandons any sense of control he has and instead embraces the wild, unpredictable nature of the Spirit of God and all that that might entail. To again quote Sayers, our unhindered comfort not only makes us spiritually sick, but mentally and physically weak. We are like astronauts coming back from space, muscles atrophied after months of zero gravity. Our lack of hardship weakens our resilience. The brilliance of Christianity is turning our challenges into the gold of a Christ-like character. In other words, in this gray zone, this challenging time might actually be good for us. It can return us to the reason that we exist in the first place without distraction, making Christ's victory known to the world. For Paul, not only are we to love our neighbors as a way of loving God, but we are also to love the ways of God as a way of loving our neighbors. There are times when this will mean that we must suffer the wrath of our culture pushing back on us in order that they may better know God because the ways of God are best for all. Now, these cultural changes, this gray zone, it may not be our fault, but as journalist Bob Smetana says, they are our problem. The good news, though, is that this. Crisis can lead to renewal. 
Crisis leads to renewal. The wilderness of the gray zone is not a place of exile. It is a place for us to meet with God. Our culture has never been more receptive to hope, to community, to the shared purpose that we preach. In this gray zone, we are discovering that our individualistic, consumeristic, polarized ways are not keeping the chaos at bay. In fact, they are not helpful nudges at all. They are adding to the turbulence. We who follow Jesus know that the only hope to be had is not through self-determination or materialism, but through the transformative ways of the creator of all things. But self-determination and materialism, by their very nature, cloud people's ability to see hope, to see God at all. And so how we present ourselves matters. We are what the world can see. We must be a non-anxious presence, inviting all into the joy of relationship with a Savior who loves us. We must actively live the things that we believe. Living the countercultural character of Jesus, the ways of courage, mercy, justice, grace, self-control, all the other fruit of the Spirit, These are the tiny nudges that push the system in new directions. Jesus is our hope. Then the church can show that hope by providing multi-generational, multi-ethnic community that comes by serving together on God's common mission in hard times. Or as our Finding Your Why cohort said it, we connect and serve so that generations can discover and experience God's transforming love. Church, we have a purpose. Do not fear, for God is with us in this time and in this place and in this culture. May we take courage, even if, maybe especially if the ship feels like it's going down. Because God has something in mind. God's kingdom has come near. Amen. Let's pray together. God, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to know where you are moving in this time. Give us courage. Give us resilience. Give us the hope that we so desperately need to pursue your ways in this time. God, I pray for us as we move forward that you would lead us, that we would be willing to abandon ourselves, abandon our preferences, abandon all that holds us back from the place you're calling us. God, it's in your name we pray together. Amen.